So I was at this puppy show thing the other day. There was like a puppy show. Well, not a puppy show. Let me. It wasn't a puppy show. It was a. You and I live very different lives. <laughs> <laughs> it was. We were at an event and there was puppies with the children. Yeah. Yes, with my children. Yes, it was not something I attended by okay, myself. Just, well, I don't know. I had my my twin girls there. Mm-hmm. They're both seven, and we were learning about these puppies. They're very cute puppies, and the girls were like cuddling these puppies. And the lady who's selling these puppies or finding homes for these puppies, just absolutely selling them, yes. but, you know, finding a home, uh, is like, we don't sell two of the siblings together because they, like, it doesn't necessarily always work. Now, in the meantime, as I'm having the conversation with this woman, Lindsay, my wife Lindsay, is next to me trying to tell the girls they have to get out of the puppy thing, and they're completely ignoring her. Like, they're just talking to each other, cuddling puppies. And like, you guys, got, you guys got to get out. You guys got to get out. You guys get out. They're not, like, not... Mm-hmm. This lady's like, yeah, it's interesting. What what happens with <laughs> when you sell puppies together? Because they're siblings. They eat, he's she's like either they get aggressive, like with one another, and then they, that that can be a problem. And again, meanwhile in the background, Lindsay's like, guys, that, like like, can you even hear me? Like, listen. She goes, or what happens is that they they just bond together and then completely don't fall in love with anybody in the family and completely dissociate. And I was like, I'm very familiar with this. this is happening behind me in the background. So yeah, it was, was this uh, lady talking to the girls though, and they were ignoring their mother, listening to the lady talk? No, she was talking oh, to me. She was talking to you. Well, Lindsay's trying to tell them to get out, and they're just completely dissociated because they have each other, and they're a weird. They're a weird they could have been aggressive in a Another random thing that happened the other day. My girls used to do like a twin language thing a little bit mm-hmm. growing up. You know, they like kind of understand each other. Now they're seven. So Selena comes downstairs and is just going, me, mo, me, ma, ma, mo, me, 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 And I'm like, honey, like. Just being goofy. Yeah, just being goofy, right? And I was like, hey, like, it's kind of getting annoying. You know what I mean? Like, knock it off. And she just like, me, ma, ma, and just like wanders off. Rosin comes downstairs and she's like, hey, where's Selena? I said, I don't know, but will you please tell her like she needs to brush her teeth? You guys need to brush your teeth. She's like, yeah, I'll tell her. I think she's upstairs. I hear Rosin go upstairs. Rosin doesn't say anything to Selena. Rosin goes, me, mama, me, mama, me, mama. And then Selena's like, me, mama. And then they go brush their teeth. It was the most random. It's very creepy. It's like a, I feel like I'm living in like a little bit of a Twilight Zone thing at home. It's kind of I mean, strange. that story does tell me one thing, that you just have no control over your home. Yeah, home. yeah, pretty much. That's pretty, very, very true. So, All right. Well, enough silliness. Welcome to the Back to Basics podcast where we get crap done. This is a podcast where me, Jason Seitz, a paramedic nurse, and my brother, Christopher Seitz, an ER physician, talk about complicated medical topics, and we break them back down to basics. It's in the name, peeps. Yep. Yep, yep. Um, all right, cool. We're Today, we're going to be talking about pain management. Mm-hmm. This will be a CE for both EMS providers and for nursing providers. Just give me some time on the nursing side, okay? Just, just It'll be there. some time. By the time by the time people are seeing this fully, you well, this is going to come out on September eleventh, two thousand twenty three, as a credit. Okay, perfect. We'll probably release the podcast before that. If I'm being realistic with my pace, we will not be able to launch nursing CEs until like October, November. Okay, so if you're listening to this in September of twenty twenty three, just be patient. Next month, you'll be able to get a credit for it. But everybody else in the future, if I'm fast, to this, if I'm fast, you can. He's fast. Even if you're, but if you're listening to this in the future, you hopefully you're getting a CE credit for it, I guess. I don't know. And just disregard what we're talking about because you're getting a CE credit for it. Perfect. All right. Um, this will be a one hour credit. We're talking about pain management and we're going to title this 11 out of 10 pain management because how many times have you been told by a patient when you give them a scale, they give you something outside of that scale. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about why that doesn't matter and it shouldn't piss you off so much. Exactly. All right. Cool. That makes a lot of 
clinicians very angry. Mm. And yeah, hopefully by the end of this content today, you'll be like, oh, okay, like that doesn't bother me as much anymore because I understand how to use their pain scale to treat them better. Exactly. So some objectives that we're going for is just uh, make sure that you guys kind of recognize the stigma of pain management and treating pain and, and how that works. We're going to be talking about types of pains and definition of pain, different pain types like somatic versus visceral versus radiating versus acute pain versus chronic pain, all that stuff. We're going to talk about the characteristics of pain, so how the patient feels that, um, the anatomy and physiology of pain, so how your body is actually activating the pain response, uh, dependence versus addiction, because that is an issue that we have to look into, mm-hmm. measuring pain, how we can assess our patient for pain, uh, treatment of pain, both non-pharmacological and pharmacological, and then the side effects of those treatments. We're going to talk specifically about uh, quality of life versus removal of pain with people in chronic pain, and then we will conclude. I like that it. is my outline. Perfect. I like it. Trying to get I'm more a- like educationally by being like, here are the objectives. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's good. I'm actually excited about this because I think this, I mean, on the one hand, this is something that we can all relate to. Any clinician, if you're dealing with, if you are a clinician, you deal with pain on a regular basis, yes. right? In your heart. <laughs> Just kidding. No, no. no, but you know what I mean? Like every patient is experiencing some form of discomfort or pain. Um, and it's actually a very interesting topic when you jump in and, a, and very like complex topic, which I'm excited about. But I also think that I'm excited about bringing this back to basics for people. I, my hope is that when you guys leave, you know, listening to this or watching this, that you have a really good way of approaching pain with your patients moving forward. And I've always found like when I have like a solid approach, um, not that I enjoy treating people's pain, but I but I enjoy enjoy bringing that comfort for sure, right? I mean, I think that's kind of a big component here. So for I'm sure. excited about this. This is going to be good. It'll be good. We're going to start with the def- medical definition of pain. And I had it written on the outline, but I didn't print that page Ooh, out. So let's read it. The medical definition of pain is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage or described in terms of such damage. And that's why you see why this is such a complicated <laughs> topic. <laughs> so I, I like to say and this is going to be my theme throughout this podcast, is that the experience of pain can be very subjective. Everyone experiences pain in a different way. But the presence of pain is objective. Mm -hmm. Even with like psychogenic pain and things like that, that pain is as real as any pain you've ever felt. It, It exists. It's there. It's objective. How the patient's experiencing it, though, may be subjective. And it's not really our place to judge how that's handled. So I think there's two components. To that. It's not our place to judge if there if a patient is having an appropriate subjective response to pain, and we have to recognize that it is not our place to judge or really say whether a patient has pain or not. Like you just read that definition. Clearly, if they say they have pain, then by definition they have pain, yeah. right? I mean that that is just that is just the truth, and I think we have to start there because if you enter into managing pain with your patients from a standpoint of I'll decide whether or not they're actually having pain or not. You've already lost the whole game. Yeah. Right. You've, you've already like completely don't listen to this. There's no point. I mean, that you've missed the point. Yeah, exactly. So I think both of those sides are very, very important. Yeah. And I think pain is unique too, because like, like you said, like if you're a clinician, you've dealt with pain, like pain is our body's way of telling us that something's wrong. So most of the time, pain or discomfort is why someone comes to you in the first place, right? They wouldn't know that they're, sick without having symptoms and those symptoms are usually painful in some way or another right so um so we're gonna be we're gonna be talking in more detail about about like what pain is but just understand that pain is 
there doesn't necessarily always have to be a direct reason for the pain. You don't, it's not like, Hey, if your body has this stimulus, you're experiencing pain. And if it doesn't, you're not, mm-hmm. and you're going to find that out when we talk about the anatomy and physiology, there's things that we just don't quite understand about pain. And the way that our nerves and brain works is pain is real, whether you can find a reason, an underlying condition that's causing it or not. So. Yeah. I think that like a, a something to kind of highlight in the beginning here is that we, like, again, this is probably one of the most important topics to talk about in just clinical medicine in general and why we need a lot of research and more. Because there's a reason there was an opiate pandemic, well, there still is an opiate pan- epidemic, right? And not there's not an antibiotic epidemic. The reason there's an opiate epidemic is not because people, you know, wanted to get high. It's that pain is present everywhere. And the treatment of that pain is critically important to health and vitality. And, and then we'll talk about why, like, we have to be careful in how we, how we treat that pain because it can cause dependent and addiction. But, like, the opiate crisis didn't come out of a bunch of people wanting to, you know, get high. It came out of the fact that, like, everyone experiences pain. And we happen to have these medications that can be quite addictive to treat it. But that's where it started, right? Mm-hmm. It didn't start with people saying, like, hey, I want to, like, you know, there's a lot of lot of cheaper ways to get high. I'll just put it that way, right? That's not why the opiate crisis happened. So, just something to highlight: like this is a very real, like everybody experiences pain, many people on a daily basis, and again, it's something that I think we as clinicians have to make sure we truly understand and explore and dive into. And again, I think if you're starting a conversation with a patient with the idea that you're going to figure out if they're having pain, then you're, you're, you've already missed the boat. Well, I would say too that Chris and I are like extra sensitive about this topic because our background is in emergency medicine. And in emergency medicine specifically, we do deal with a lot of people that are in pain. Mm-hmm. And there there is often cultural shifts within providers where, you know, there start we start to stigmatize people that are pain seeking or oh, they're just med seeking and this and that. And like you kind of have to you and have to set exist. those yeah, just because they exist though doesn't mean like you have to set aside those like preconceived notions about, Oh, every time someone comes to me and they say that they're 11 out of 10 in pain, they must be seeking pain meds. Like they are experiencing pain. You know what I mean? Maybe they're experiencing pain in a different way than you would, but like, it's, it's not your call on the, that provider level to not treat them. Mm -hmm. Right. And, And if the appropriate way to treat them is with pain medication, it's not appropriate for you to say, well, you don't get as much because I think that maybe you're faking or I think that maybe you're seeking. Like, it's just, that's just not okay. That's, that's abuse. It's mm-hmm. neglect. Yeah. Um, and we're going to kind of teach you some ways that we, when we look at pain as a whole and how we kind of calculate what types of pain meds we give in different situations and how we qualify and quantify that, you can be pretty confident that you can apply these algorithms and you're not going to be propagating the opioid epidemic. You're not going to be propagating abuse of the system. If the system is applied how it's supposed to be applied, mm-hmm. it's difficult to abuse it. It really is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, you take it upon yourself to just be like, hey, you know, Gary doesn't deserve, you know, fentanyl today for his broken arm because I know that he uses heroin or something like that. Well, it's that's, like, that's not. That's, that's I was going to say that. So like this, one of the biggest challenges I think in emergency medicine, especially as an emergency physician, when I'm working, is that. People, even people who come into the emergency, and this happens, who come to the emergency department because they want more meds, they want more opiates, they want, they do want to get that high because they become dependent and addicted. Even those people can have heart attacks, right? They can break their hip, 
they can, you know, have, you know, gastritis. They can have, you know, kidney stones. Kidney stones. Yeah. yeah, you know what I mean. And, and like, it, it, it's even more of a challenge than for me. Like, you have to be very careful that you don't just chalk it up. That's that stigma what we talk about, right? You have to be very careful. You don't just chalk it up to, oh, they just want drugs. Like, sure, maybe. But like they also like they're people, so they have the same organs as everybody else. Things can still happen. And like I've seen doctors sometimes say, Oh, he's you know, he's painting again, he's painting again, all of a sudden you missed, you know, cholecystitis or you missed appendicitis or you you know, and you gotta be careful, you know. Well, and I think the the judgment comes with we we judge people's intent. Mm-hmm. And that's as a medical provider, you're you're not allowed to judge people's intent. Like right. you're not designed to judge people's intent. So like if you had a, a user, well, let's say you have a, someone who uses heroin every day and they come in with a condition that is causing them pain and they let you know that they have a history of opioid abuse, you should take that in consideration in what opioids you give them and what pain because they might need more because their body's yeah. more dependent on it. Like True. that should affect your treatment in that way mm-hmm. because sometimes they use those medications to have fun and not to treat a medical condition. You don't have the right to worry about that intent. Right now, your job is to take care of that pain. That's what your job is, yeah. right? Yeah. So um, we could talk about that all day, but like it, it is very important to treat pain for a number of reasons. So pain interrupts our body's function in a lot of different ways. Um, it's our first alert system. It's essentially the alarm system to our house, right, to tell us that something's wrong. Mm-hmm. So it's important to pay attention to pain no matter how severe it is, right? That, that, that is our body is trying to tell us something's going on, Right. Some other reasons why it's really important to make sure that we treat pain. Like if you think post-operatively, right, someone comes out of surgery, why is it important to treat that patient for pain? Just to, Are we just doing it to be nice or are we doing it to physiologically, you know, gain an advantage? Are you asking me? Yeah, I'm letting you. Oh, okay. Oh, this is a back yeah. and forth. Yeah, 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 okay, I got it, got it, got it. Okay. Uh, we are using... You know, <laughs> I mean, I so, know. I know. You know, okay. I, I was just sure. Know, I was sure. Yeah. yeah, no, but we, we definitely are, right? I think the point you're getting at is that we treat pain not because that person's just uncomfortable. That's one That's one component, but also because we need to get them up and moving. Their mobility makes... Their, their recovery is dependent on them being able to move and shift fluids around and... Breathe appropriately. Yeah, breathe appropriately. Well, that's a great example too. I mean, like we... Like, we, you know, in the emergency department, right, when someone comes in and they've like cracked a rib or stuff like that, I treat pain for two reasons. One, because I want them to be comfortable. But two, because I don't want them to splint. Mm-hmm. I want them to be able to, you know, take that deep breath to keep their lungs open so that the bottom of their lungs doesn't collapse because their body will splint for that. Their mm-hmm. body, like, I've even had older people be like, no, I'm actually fine if I take shallow breaths. Yeah, I don't want you to take shallow breaths. Right. I actually am going to give you this device, right? I'm going to give you this spirometer to like actually like purposely take deep breaths. And I'm going to give you pain medicine so that you can do so, so that your lungs don't collapse and you get pneumonia. You know right. what I mean? So there, there is multiple facets of why we treat pain, not just the comfort side. That's a key impo- component of it. Right. But there's other things too. And the experience of pain can increase inflammation in the body it can increase muscle spasm in the body which can can wear down your muscle tissue it can uh increase stress response your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system can you know either or can get ramped up because of this like there are very negative health benefits to long-term experience of pain in general well we've talked about this even in like when we talk about mis right why do we give morphine in an mi right if i give morphine in an mi it calms me down it, it helps my pain my heart rate goes down my blood pressure go down 
in an MI, I don't want my blood pressure up. I don't want my heart rate up. That's that can, you know, propagate even further issues with my heart damage when there's a blockage. You know what I mean? So like, again, there, there are, there are other aspects that are critically important and why we need to focus in on treating pain appropriately. Yeah. And what's just so weird about it is like, is pain a symptom? Yes. Is it a condition though? Yes. Mm-hmm. So yeah. like that's what we have kind of, kind of realize. Like treat it as its own condition. Sometimes, yeah. um, it's also a symptom of other conditions. So, and I think you know, really quick, going back to the stigma that I think people do have around pain and chronic pain. I think we're getting better at that as a society, especially as a clinical community. But the reason for that is because of that definition you read. Right? There is the experience of pain. So I may experience pain very different than you. If I put onto you what I think my experience would be with what you're, uh, what you're suffering from or what you're experiencing right now, like that, it doesn't work. We can't do that. You know, and we, I think as clinicians in general, not even outside of pain, we need to be considering that in everything we do, right? right. When it comes to racial stigmatisms, when it comes to, um, you know, cultural, you know, how we respond to death. I mean, like, that's a big one I see, like, especially with dealing with patients who, pass away, you know what I mean? In my emergency department, like how the family responds. I can't, just because I wouldn't respond a certain way or I would respond differently. Like my experience is very different than the next human experience. I think we have to recognize that as clinicians. Yeah. Well, can I tell my story that has to do with that? Uh, yeah. So one, of the, <laughs> so one of the first fire departments that I ever worked at, we had a large population of a certain population culture. And it was the, the way that this culture mourns is very different than the, the way that I grew up mourning. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like a little bit of like a shell shock to me. Yeah. To like, like In our home, them. you very much buried those feelings deep down inside. Yeah. You know, I, like I mean, a normal I, person. No, our mom used to regularly say, feelings are just feelings. And like, you don't need to experience talk about them <laughs> or think about them. I'm not kidding. She didn't mean it that way though. But mom, if you're listening, she we did. love you and we well, didn't mean. Here's the thing is, she's not listening, Chris. And maybe so there's, that's there's the several problems here with our upbringing. Right? So right, that's a whole different thing to unpack later. But anyway, um, yeah. So like I, we're just a little bit more of a stoic family. Like we handled handled like like deaths and stuff like that. Like I remember our sister getting very mad at us for like making jokes like on our way to family members' funerals yeah. and stuff because that's how you and I coped with the humor of yeah. that. And just like I would look at someone and be like, "Why aren't you being humorous? This is the only way to be fun." I one time said at a firefighters funeral be careful i i one time said guys we're here to put the fun in funeral because i thought it would like get a couple laughs and just like relax people and that works in no that works in a group of of firefighters you know i mean like they get that they they're like haha they don't think that jason's actually insensitive our cousins didn't love that when grandma died though (laughs) (laughs) exactly exactly so like that's like and that is immature in its own way right yeah, yeah And people would this, look at that. So, an example, people would look at that and be like, wow, what an right. inappropriate response to right. death. And right? I don't think that they should do that. And in the same way, I shouldn't judge them for doing what they did. Mm-hmm. But it's kind, the situation's kind of funny, okay? Mm-hmm. We okay. were doing CPR on this lady. She had passed. She was a very old woman. And the family was, like, hitting themselves. Like, that, that was a normal culture thing. They were, like, striking themselves. And that's that I was normal. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like, they're just wrecked. But then they just tore the kitchen apart. Like really? ripped off cabinets and threw them and stuff. And I like at one point was like, guys, like I, I was I was having trouble not stopping the code and being like, if we get her back, she's gonna be real mad about her kitchen, guys. <laughs> yeah, fair. You know yeah, I mean? that's fair. But like we have to understand. Like, don't give up on her yet. You know yeah. what I mean? Clean the kitchen. Right. You know, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So but yeah. So but there are different cultural response. There's different cultural and 
psychological responses to pain, even emotional pain. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And we have to respect that it's it's very different than our experience. Yeah. If I ripped apart grandma's kitchen mm-hmm. while she was on the floor and we were doing CPR on her, you would have beat the crap out of me. Like yeah. you would have been like, that's not okay, Jason. Right, right. You can't, you know. Right. I mean, you would have tried. But I would have beat you to death with, <laughs> with one of those cabinet, <laughs> one of those cabinet doors. <laughs> but, but no, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. it's just that yeah. would have been like, oh my gosh, something snapped in Jason. Yeah. In this family, it, that was just a very normal, like, in fact, I think that that family would have looked at someone who was quiet in the corner and not like very outwardly responding as like, oh, they're not even sad. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. What I mean, yeah, so yeah, just yeah. something to yeah, think about. Yeah, absolutely. But, no, makes sense. Um, Cool. Anyway, types of pain and definitions. So let's talk a little bit about some of the words and phrases that you're going to hear when we discuss pain and we are try we, to describe it. Because it's, it and, yeah, yeah, because that definition is pretty <laughs> kind of gray in, uh, in and of itself. I'll caveat this here. Again, I've said this so many times. You guys have heard me. If you listen to our stuff, like be careful when we, def- we got to be careful in medicine when we define something to put a name around it. Because mm-hmm. sometimes we can box that in and now we have a harder time recognizing, especially in something as subjective as pain, like, oh, well, you don't fit this mold of acute pain or chronic pain. So like, again, take it with a grain of salt. The reason we define things in medicine is so that we can better treat them. We can better understand them. We can better research them. But everything is a continuum. Everything is, you know, again, especially in pain, like there's a lot of subjectiveness there. So I just like to always like throw that yeah. in there because it, we'll define these things now. And I don't want you to like, pigeonhole pain into these like three or four things exactly yeah. well and so and that, that's it's funny that you say that because like in preparation for this podcast i was like oh let's let's like look at like t- ways that we define pain and i like and i found an article that said the four types of pain and i found the art, an article that said the three types of pain sure and they were completely different yeah the four and the three there was no they're yep. all unique things and then i found an article that was like the eight types of pain <laughs> i mean so like yeah, everybody yeah, yeah. is talking about we're all describe we're using adjectives to describe and look at why and you gotta i think you have to understand the why behind defining so like like we'll start right here so we're gonna talk first about acute pain versus chronic pain right so acute pain in the definition that we're talking about today is pain that is present and lasts less than three months it's it's a new onset pain right new onset pain it's a new thing and we've experienced it for a shorter quote-unquote short period of time how do we define that period of time for some reason, three months. Chronic pain right. is pain that we've been experiencing for three months or more. For three months or more, maybe not every day, but on a regular basis. But there's a big difference between a patient who's experienced in pain for 15 years and someone who's experienced pain for four months. You know what I mean? Yeah. But we, we classify both of those as chronic pain. But so the reason weird. we classify them is because we do have research that shows how we approach the pain management of something that's chronic pain three months or more versus acute pain can make a difference in outcomes later on when it comes to dependence, you know, re- addiction. This is the whole, this comes out of that opiate crisis thing. We've learned that like, okay, man, if you've been having pain for three months, I got to be a little more careful how I approach your pain management regimen mm-hmm. to make sure that, you know, I'm not causing a further problem later on when it, maybe it's like dependence. So that's, but again, you have to understand why we're defining them that way. Right. So if you come to me and said, I've had pain for two months and 29 days, and I'm like, well, shoot, I don't know what to do. I mean, you ask more questions, right? I mean, I can remember the why behind exactly. it. So Exactly. And again, like, don't compare, don't act like the patient that's been dealing with pain for 15 years and the patient that's been dealing with pain for four months are exactly the same patient. They're very different patients. Yeah, 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 they have yeah. different histories. You know what I mean? Yeah. 15 years is a lot longer than four months. Both are serious, but you know, right. it's just kind of how we approach the treatment of it. It's similar to like depression, you know, like acute, yeah. like a, a acute depression right. episode. We treat versus them Versus having like 
major depressive disorder where like, hey, I've had this, I've had these symptoms for, it's affecting my life and I've had these symptoms right. for more than several months. You know, okay, now it's turning into, yeah. okay, we, we would define this now as a major depressive disorder. So that we, we can treat, treat that it differently. A, just in a little bit of yeah. a different and way. And so that we can, re- sometimes you have to, I think in clinical medicine, box things in so that you can target research and data towards one thing, right? Yeah. So so I, I can't I can't do research on pain, period. Mm-hmm. I have to almost define, like, okay, I'm going to do research on acute pain. So I'm going to do research on people who have experienced a new pain that's been less than two, you know, just together. Like, so these things can change later. We might find later, like, oh, you know what? Now that we've got more research, chronic pain is six months. I mean, like, it, it doesn't yeah. really matter. But again, it, it, this just always recognizing the why behind classifications is exactly. important. So you're absolutely right. Acute, acute and chronic pain are ways that we describe pain. Chronic pain is three months or more. That's typically how we define it now. Um, within primary or within uh, chronic pain, we we have kind of two definitions of pain. One is primary pain, and one is secondary pain. We're going to go more in depth into like how you would uh, uh, attack these problems uh, with treatment. Uh, later, but right now we're just going to say that primary pain is essentially pain that exists as a condition in and of itself. So your condition is pain. Mm-hmm. We can't find a physiological reason that you're experiencing the pain. It's not I injured my knee, so my knee hurts. It's just my knee hurts, mm-hmm. right? Um, while while secondary pain would be secondary to an underlying condition. So I have a kidney stone, so my abdomen hurts, my side hurts, right? Really, right? Um, and, and how we treat those in a chronic pain state is just a little different. We'll talk about that. So, and again, and that I makes sense too, because like, what, what's the main thing that I'm going to do to try to treat the pain in secondary pain is solve the underlying condition, right? Cause right. it's going to make the pain go away. So, yeah. uh, things to think about. So somatic pain is another way that we use to describe pain. Sometimes somatic pain refers to like a diffuse, deep pain. It's usually from ligaments, tendons, bones, nerves, and blood vessels. But if someone describes like a somatic pain, a lot of times they're talking about like a deep ache within like a muscle bone ligament. Mm. Um, Visceral pain is more of a description of like a sharper intermittent pain can be deep, can be like cramping or spasms. Right. Mm. And like as we start to throw these definitions, you might be listening to me going, you know, there's a lot of weird ways that we describe pain. Like it's it's right. hard to kind of qualify and quantify pain. Um, psychogenic pain is pain that is th- – there's not a physiological reason. It can be acute or chronic, but there's not really a physiological reason that we can fi- find for it. Um, so it is, it's being created in the brain that, that pain response is being created in the brain some way, which can be very real. So like, I think sometimes like when we say psychogenic pain, we're not saying like, I think there's a stigma around that where we, people think like, oh, pain, they're just making it up. No, no, it is again, back to, it's very real for them, Mm -hmm. even to the point where they've done like MRI scans and things like that, where like the nerves are actually firing, right? Like the brain is actually creating like the, the the brain's a powerful thing, right? We don't know a lot about like, but the brain actually can create nerve stimulus, like pain receptors to go off. I mean, like, so it's it's a it's a real pain. It's just we don't have a physiological reason for it at the time, right? Well, and and the physiological effects of the pain will have the secondary effects of pain, the high blood pressure, the mm-hmm. increased heart rate, things like that can happen without there being actually a stimulus for the pain. So. Um, nociceptive pain is activation of true pain receptors from injury or inflammation. So that's nociceptive pain. Um, nosoplastic pain is then changes in the pain system from active, previous activation of nociceptive or neuropathic pain. 
and then the autonomous nervous system basically is now like always alert. Like, like this is similar to like phantom pain basically where like our brain has rewired because we've experienced pain and trauma and now we're always in pain even though the even though the activation of that nerve has turned off. So it's uh, I watched a video that explained it where it was basically like imagine that like um, your your house burned down, right? And and you got you replaced your whole kitchen. You replaced your kitchen. It's all brand new appliances. But every time you walk into that kitchen, you're scarred by the fact that it was burnt. It, it's a reminder that it was at one point burnt. It's not actively burning right now. The burning's gone, but that trauma, that feeling of of hurt from it, is still there, even though yeah. the, the acute episode is gone. So I think another another we use that same scenario. So like so nociceptive pain, right? So receptive, mm-hmm. like it's like there's an actual like nervous stimulus there, right? When I reach for that refrigerator, I open it. You know, like there's there's a nosoplastic. We talk about plasticity in the brain, right? You're talking about that rewiring the plastic. That's like walking into that burn kitchen and reaching for the refrigerator that used to be here, but now it's over there, but you still reach for it with the same place. Like our brain creates these neural pathways so that we don't have to remember everything. So that we don't have to. So like, and that's why people who like, you know, lose a limb will still feel pain in that limb. They'll still sometimes feel like they're moving their hand even. It's because their brain has, the brain is, you know, we talk about like plasticity, it, it like can, cr- you know, form and deform these different neural pathways. And, and that's a, a real thing that happens. And a way to, to treat that pain would be to retrain the brain, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. through therapies and, and maybe pain medications as yeah. well, but, but through par- therapies long term to be able to kind of reconnect those neural pathways and, and get you a functioning again. Yeah. Um, referred pain, when someone says they have referred pain or we describe something as referred pain, that's just pain that's located away from the injury or like illness site, like where, where that, that nerve ending is being activated. And sometimes you have referred pain because those nerves are innervated and they're shared. So it's very common, like in a heart attack, right? You're, you're, the pain is in the, is in the heart muscle, the injuries in the heart muscle, but you're feeling shoulder pain or jaw pain. That's referred pain. And that can be because of nerves that are shared. It can be because of there's an amplified sensitivity of the spinal cord. It can be because there's activation of the sympathetic nervous system, which is activating pain in other areas. So that, that would be referred pain. So just like Chris will refer a real doctor when you come to the ER and you have a problem. Wait, what do you mean real doctor? (laughs) (laughs) Our body will sometimes refer the pain away from the problem, Chris, Wait, to, something, to something else, right? <laughs> something else. So, I don't know, it makes sense. Um, um, actually, it made me think about this. I did see this video the other day, this is a while back, where this, they would put, have these people put their hand in like some kind of thing. But actually, and then they had like, a, there was actually a fake hand there, but the person couldn't really, didn't see that it was a fake hand. So you'd like put your hand in something and you're actually underneath that thing. And then they'd like smash the fake hand, and these people would experience like oh, tremendous pain, yeah. even though their hand was like underneath the whole time. The brain's just yeah, yeah. it's kind of like because they're they're watching their hand get crushed, and that like it's like again when we talk about this is why once you start to like talk about this stuff, like you realize like yeah, there's I don't I don't I have no way to judge people's pain. Right. Like there's no like that's not even a fair thing to even try to do. Right? It's kind of crazy. So I saw a similar video where they took they blindfolded this girl. Mm-hmm. This guy blindfolded his girlfriend, and then he had her push her hand. She didn't know what she was doing, but she pushed her oh, hand through this. a watermelon. Uh-huh. It was like a cutout watermelon. And then he took the watermelon away, and instead put like a goat's butt there, and then took the thing off. So she thought that she had like. The I don't think I don't think that's as relevant as you think it is it's, to the I mean, conversation. But she experienced the pain of the having pain of having done that to something, <laughs> even though it didn't happen. 
All right. Anyway, we may, uh, cut, we may cut that portion. <laughs> neuropathic pain is damage to sensory nerves. So this would be like the nerve itself that is responsible for the pain response um, is – or the sensory response, we should say, is damaged. So uh, central – this can be central or peripheral. Remember, you have your central nervous system, which is your brain and spinal cord, and then you have your peripheral nervous system, which is all the nerves that innervate all your muscles, tissues, things like that. Um, so if there's any damage to that – were so we, it's, it's damage to the sensory nerve, so the nerve is like almost always somewhat being stimulated because of like inflammation and scar tissue. Yeah, and it's like so if like, your alarm broke, so it goes off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So right. it's like going off. So that's and I think a lot of times people experience that pain as like burning or like tingling, pins and needles. That like it's just like that. It just falls constant. asleep, stuff yeah, like yeah, that. It's just yeah, that con- but it's like a constant feeling of that because the nerves are damaged. Exactly. Um, and then breakthrough pain you'll hear us talk about sometimes is when you're you're under pain treatment. And you still have a spike. So, like, let's say we're giving you a certain amount of medication to try to keep you at a, you know, at a level of pain. Let's say our, our goal is a five out of ten to kind of keep you at that level. Well, at two o'clock you're at a four. At three o'clock you're at a three. But at four o'clock, you know, two hours before you get your med, you're spiking up to a six or seven. Mm-hmm. So that would be breakthrough pain. It's breaking through our treatment method of it. And there are treatments that we can do and, and some other types of meds that we can get to try to control breakthrough pain, but it's just worth worth mentioning. Yeah, yeah. So those are kind of the ones that I picked. There's lots of other adjectives that we use to describe pain, but those are some of the main ones that you're going to hear uh, out there. And I'll just and reiterate, I think like, there, again, lots of ways to describe pain. Just make sure you understand why you're classifying it, right? Is it is it for treatment? Is it for research? Is it for general understanding of how someone is experiencing it? Like, um, And I think too, you have to be somewhat you know, obviously documentation in clinical medicine is super important. So you, I think you got to be kind of consistent in how you document pain for a patient as well, right? If I'm going to start talking about the patient is, you know, experiencing like cramping, spasms, things like that, visceral pain, I need to continue to speak of their pain in that way because their experience within that should be defined. That's one thing is just an interesting article I read recently about like how we document people's pain and just needing to be consistent in like, you know, like don't change your own adjectives around as you document the progression of someone's pain. Like with everything in medicine, you know, things are need to be remeasured, right? The effectiveness, the effectiveness of our treatment are based on the patient was here, now they're here, right? So following a patient in that, like just making sure we're using the same terminology as we... Well, and that's describing the quality of the pain versus the the quantity, the measure, the mm-hmm. stuff that we can measure, right? So like like we in EMS, a lot of times it's like you use the patient's own words, put it in quotes, yeah. you know, in your report, straight up right, that they it feels like an elephant is standing on their chest. You know, that helps us describe to practitioners, hey, this is what they're feeling. I actually had that's a different woman one time describe sorry. something as passing a pineapple backwards through her vagina. That's how she described her pain. I don't... <laughs> So, so think about a pineapple. I, I don't need to think side. about. I get what she's yeah. saying. That's how she described her pain. I don't understand why she has a frame of reference well, to say. You know what? Everyone's experience is different. <laughs> okay, I'm not. I'm not here to judge. That's what we're talking about. But that is how someone. And I absolutely put that in the chart. You know. Oh yeah. For the benefit of anybody who read it after. But that's how she. That's that's. Quotations are a very fun way. To. Handle enjoy your joy medicine. Yeah, to enjoy your reporting <laughs> of medicine sometimes. Um, all right. So anyway, what I was trying to say is like that is a qualitative, subjective form of description, mm-hmm. while a quantitative, objective form of description would be she rates herself a 
I would assume 10 out of 10 <laughs> yeah. on the pain scale, right? Like, I'm like, what? I'm like how would you rate that? She's like, four out of 10. I'm like, that's four out of 10? <laughs> you know what? Everyone's experience is different. And that's a good part to bring but up. That's, pain threshold versus tolerance. Sure. But I would say that too. Like, So a, a good point is like describing someone's subjective pain is important, but having ways to measure objective parts of the pain, right? I think that's that's why the pain scale comes into play, and we'll talk about that. But I think some people fail to utilize the pain scale for all it's worth. Let me put it right. that way. You know what I mean? I think a, we'll talk about that. But That's a great some, description of the quality of that pain. Right. But like if someone reverse birthed a pineapple up your vagina, that might be a 6 out of 10 for you, and it might be a 4 out of 10 for her. You don't know. Right, right, you know? right, right. So you don't. It's just so really you got to measure the objective components of the pain as well. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, pain threshold versus tolerance that I just want to mention. Threshold is basically how long it would take a stimulus to, or how intense the stimulus would need to be for your body to like recognize the pain response. So like, this would be like if, uh, if I had a needle and I was applying pressure on my hand, maybe at that three pressure, I start having a, I elicit a pain response, but your body, it doesn't elicit a pain response until it's a level four or five pressure, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Right. I didn't think another example I have is I was in a really relationship one time (laughs) (laughs) oh Oh. so so that that's your your threshold of pain like when when your body would start recognizing the pain and activate the pain response pain tolerance is different pain tolerance is once you elicit that pain response how long and what level you can you can handle that pain you can handle that pain without having necessarily like um negative responses to it so there are some people that are like experience uh a low pain threshold and they're experiencing pain every day, but they go on with their life and they continue to do their yeah. thing. And they, they kind of have that threshold, that, that tolerance of that pain. And there are other people that would seek care a lot earlier because um, their body responds just a little bit differently. And their tolerance is yeah. a little bit lower. And I think, I think the, the tolerance comes into play with like, when does it start to affect quality of life? I think that's exactly. kind of how I would say tolerance. Cause like, for instance, like I might have back pain today and I'm moving around doing fine. There, there will become a point in, in my pain, experience where like now i can't now it's disrupting function i can't climb up the stairs i can't right like now it's starting like whereas like you might have back pain of you know the same level of but like you are fine climbing up this so again it's part of the experience but that threshold comes into play i usually like to define thresholds as like when does it start to affect quality of life and even that is a very subjective thing right to me Maybe I live in a ranch and walking up the stairs is not something that bothers me during the day. But like it's something it's like even the ex, even the experience of like threshold and like quality of life, like when something's mm-hmm. affecting your quality of life. This is very interesting and like we could go on forever about this, but with pain, and we talk we talk about the end here, but like quality of life versus but like how how you, <laughs> some of the experience of pain is when does it affect your daily living? Versus when would it affect mine? Even that is a part of that threshold question, but also something we have to explore with patients. Because maybe I'm like, oh man, we got your pain from an eight out of 10 to a four out of 10. And you're like, yeah, but I still can't drive. And driving is a key part of my quality of life. Like, so maybe I need with you to figure out how to get you down to a two. Whereas someone else who I got down to a four, that was a huge success and they're happy. Yeah. Even that right. component, the quality of life component can be very subjective and something we have to explore with our patients. Exactly. So what we say is like how patients experience pain are biological, psychological, and social, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. All, all three of those come into play. Some of it is their body, some of it is their psychological system, and then some of it is their social system, yeah. right? If I slapped you right now, you'd probably laugh it off. Mm-hmm. If I slapped your nine-year-old kid, probably cry. Probably 
I wouldn't cry because it's a social thing. I'd probably still laugh. <laughs> they would. They would cry. So, um, so one of the ways that we can one of the tools that we use to characterize pain is the OPQRST scale. The only reason I mention this is because it's a very valuable tool, especially in EMS. We use it pretty often. And OPQRST stands for onset, provocation, quality, radiation, severity, and time. So the onset would be how did the pain come about? The provocation would be does anything make it worse or better? The quality would be how would you describe the pain? Like a pineapple or reverse pineapple, mm-hmm. right? Um, radiation, is it traveling anywhere? Yeah, it hurts in my in my shoulder too, right? Um, severity on a scale of one to ten, or on this graphical scale, or on this you know line scale. Where where are you at? And then time would be how long has the pain been going on for? Hey, more than three months. We would define it as chronic pain then medically, right? So I think too, like we use this a lot in EMS, the OPQRST, but I think it's very very important as a as a tool for anyone. I mean, like I think sometimes I think physicians and maybe nurses and stuff too. EMS does a good job of like, this is just part of your reporting. I feel like this is very part of your secondary assessment. It's really a, so. ingrained in you guys. I think sometimes we forget or miss out on that on the hospital side of things. We're almost like, how bad your pain? And then I kind of stop there. Like each single, like this is one, two, three, four. There's like six different qualitative measures and quantitative measures for pain. Like mm-hmm. I think un- unless you were truly going through this kind of cycle and maybe use a different way, but like, you don't. You haven't really truly evaluated the pain until you've asked literally all these questions. Yeah, and I, I just think OPQRST is a great way to start. You know, way to start into that qualification yep. and quantification process. So, all right. So let's jump into the anatomy and physiology a little bit, so we can understand how a pain response uh, is typically elicited. Mm-hmm. Is that a word? Yeah, it is. Okay. Um, so a nociceptor is is a pain receptor. It's it's a nerve fiber basically that is a pain receptor it's designed to be that alert system for our body to tell our body hey something's wrong we feel pain right um these can be like mechanical heat and chemical so like prostaglandins um but typically it'll be like hey this this is hot to tell me that it's hot to get my hand away you know this is um this is damaging to me mechanical or this i feel pressure right those are all different types of nerve cells that work yeah, to kind of create all, this nociceptor to, to yeah they're all they're all nociceptors but they each kind of like almost like feel something different right one feels again like it's like pressure right so it's the mechanical like as i push down in the skin or penetrate the skin it gets triggered there's a heat you know there's a there's heat receptors basically then there's kind of those more um you know, strictly just pain. They're almost like chemical, yeah, like chemical kind of like inflammation releases and I experience pain from that. So they're actually all different types of nerves, but they're all defined as nociceptors because they're measuring different, again, aspects of how we experience pain. And then physiologically, like, like, or I guess anatomically, there's two types of fibers that usually uh, transfer information about pain to, to the brain. So A delta fibers are myelinated, what was the description that you used? You said saran wrap, I think, one yeah. time, right? Yeah, so myelinated fibers are saran wrapped basically with these little chunks to basically move an electrical stimulus very fast. So it jumps the saran wrap pieces. Um, but myelinated fibers are used for very fast stimulus. And this would be like a sharp pain, um, a pain that you're experiencing right away. Heat, if you're jerking your hand away from from a burning, something that's causing you to burn, that's that's a that's an A-delta fiber mm-hmm. uh, type of nociceptor. A C-fiber would be more of a slow pain impulse. So these are demyelinated or they're unmyelinated. They don't have any myelination. They tend to be very narrow, thin uh, fibers. And this would be the type of pain it, that it's telling you. This would be like an ache or a throbbing or like anything dull or constant. That's the kind of pain. When you're feeling that kind of pain, what's being activated are C-fibers. Mm-hmm. Your thalamus and your cortex in your brain are typically what interprets the pain. 
Uh, so the fibers send the signal, the signal is interpreted into the into the brain, and you feel pain. Yeah, and then interpretation, you know, based on your neuroplasticity and pathways, can be very different from someone else's experience of that. Exactly. And what's so interesting and misunderstood about pain is that pain can be experienced without nerve activation. Mm-hmm. So the brain can just create a pain response without the nerve actually being activated, and vice versa. The nerve can be activated, and it can be telling you, hey, we're hurting, and the brain can just not elicit a pain response. Yeah, 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 yeah. We don't really know why, yeah. to be honest with you. There's, there's still I a do, lot. I do, but it's too complicated, <laughs> it's too complicated for this conversation. <laughs> we'll be able to do that on a Back to Basics podcast. Yeah, I do, so, I do, but. You're like, I do another podcast called Back to Advanced. <laughs> <laughs> it's where I take easy, I take very simple, not complicated topics. And just complicated. And I make them super <laughs> difficult to understand. <laughs> I like it. Um. So if pain is getting worse, it can be because of an increased activation and like more, we're adding more of these nociceptor activation, but it also can be like sensitization of those nociceptors over time. So the longer we experience pain, the more sensitive we can, that receptor can get, and then the more severe the pain can feel. Uh, You can also have increased sympathetic nervous system activation, which would increase pain, and you can have increased muscle contraction, right? If I'm I'm guarding, like Chris was saying, if I'm guarding or if I'm splinting and I'm contracting muscles around that area, eventually that's going to be painful as well and kind of recruit accessory pain receptors. Well, this is interesting too because it it can be – this can also be both, right? I can stimulate – stimulate pain receptors often enough where they become almost used to the pain so my threshold goes up or i can like i can sensitize them so much that they actually start to like my threshold can go down and and really we don't again we don't really know why in some people one happens versus the other or even certain certain types of pain for one person it might happen that way right like i'm more sensitive to this you know pain sensitation now versus i'm less like it, it can both can happen which is kind of so there's like a boxer out there that instead of like getting used to getting punched in the face, it gets worse every time for Maybe. him. He's like, know. no, yeah. please. But again, that goes back to the like, it depends on those other neural pathways. It depends on that psychological social. Like for instance, like, yeah, a boxer who's put himself in a situation where he expects to get hit in the face, he's getting hit in the face and he's getting used to it. And like, that's where like his mindset is in it. Mm-hmm. Probably, you know, doesn't get hurt as much, doesn't experience that pain as badly as someone who's like, not wanting to get hit, who keeps getting hit. Right. They might be more, I mean, like, again, that, that social, psychosocial component becomes a huge component of it. You know what I mean? So very interesting. And again, I understand exactly why, but I can't explain on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then I'll, I'll just touch on, I'm going to touch on point six here, uh, right. measuring pain. So there's basically three major ways that we measure pain. We'll use a numeric scale where we'll say one to 10. And this is where we'll mention like the name of this podcast, 11 out of 10. Like we get really frustrated by that. Guys, we don't care about the number they give us if it's off the scale or not. What we're trying to do is figure out if that number is going to go down or up after our treatments. Mm-hmm. So if they give you 11 out of 10, that's fine. Hopefully they'll give you an eight out of 10 next. Guess what? Your treatments are working. So this is, and this, I, I want to talk about this for a little bit here. Do you want to talk about the other two ways we measure before we get into the numeric yes. scale? Go ahead. Visual analog scales, which is basically on a line. You just draw a line on a piece of paper and you're like on this scale. This is also where, where faith, mark where you hurt. come in, right? Well, that's, where, that like, would be a graphical scale, which okay, would be like okay. the long pain index, Okay, which is... Just funny. The Wong Pain Index is just funny to me. They, I, smiley this faces. is terrible. And don't ever do this. All right? And I didn't do this. Okay. But I knew firefighters, not at the department I worked at, at a different department. I swear to you. I, this okay, is all okay, true. Okay, okay, okay. Swear to God. 
So it wasn't you. It was no it wasn't one you me. know who could be listening to this podcast. It was a third party. It was definitely someone I know that could be listening to this okay, podcast. Right, but it was a third party at a different department. They said that one time they would like take the Wong face scale. So it's like a little happy face all the way to like a cry face. Yeah, you guys have seen and this. And they'd like mix up the faces. Oh. And then they'd be like point to it. And people would always get, they just want to int- say that they're in the most severe pain. So they point all the way to the right one. But that would be like the smiley one. <laughs> so, but, but, okay. And it's like very, probably not right it's to have petty done. and messed up. Right. But at the same time. That just goes to show you that, like, how people see how they measure their pain is objective in a way, right? They're going to go to that far side no matter what that face looks like right. a little bit, right? Because they're, they're trying to express to you that my pain is I'm up here. Pain, yeah. You know what I mean? So, yeah, so there's there's visual ones. There's the Wong pain scale, which is, like, the graph, like, the different smiley faces. Uh, and then the numer- numer- numeric scale, excuse me, like, 1 to 10. And, again, I think we, we do this thing – a lot of us where we get frustrated when someone's like, well, it's a 20 out of 10. That's fine. Right. We're talking about a scale and and it's not, we're not measuring. We hopefully are not just measuring that one time. We should be measuring it just like we're redoing vitals. We should be measuring it after our treatment, you know, an hour later, two hours later. What we're trying to do is say, is what we're doing working the biggest, like, and I've seen doctors do this. Even the patient says my pain's a 15 out of 10. And they say, okay, well, I gave them a 1 to 10 scale, so I'll say their pain's a 10. Bad idea. Because now when you walk in there and say, what's your pain? They're like 10 out of 10. Technically, you just reduced their pain by 50%, but you documented it incorrectly. You know what I mean? So, like, it's worth documenting the way it's presented to you. What what you realize that the pain scale is not for you as the clinician, right? The pain scale is not for you to fit someone into a box. The pain scale is for them to express to you how they feel. So who cares? They say hundred out of 10. Fine. I'm gonna write down hundred out of 10. How they feel over time. We don't, there's no use to me knowing what your pain is right now. If I'm not going to measure again, or if I didn't measure before, there's no use. It doesn't matter if I'm just going to give you the same amount of pain meds, no matter what you say, you know what I mean? It doesn't, doesn't make any sense. It's, it's designed to move. It's a fluid scale. People ask me a lot of times, what is the, what is the most difficult part about being a doctor or being an ER physician? And a lot of times they're just looking for like kind of a crazy story. But I will tell you that, and I, I answer the question this way every single time, patient expectations. Patient expectations is one of the most difficult things to manage as a clinician. So being having the conversations up front, especially around pain, are critically important. Again, in medicine, for better or worse, patient satisfaction scores are an important thing, right? I started to like see a huge impact, not even on my patient satisfaction scores, to be honest with you, but just in how I was relating to my patients and and my own experience of their satisfaction and the care I was providing when I set expectations up early on, especially around pain. So what is your pain right now? On a scale of one to 10, they're like 12. I say, okay, I'm, my, I'm not going to be able to get your pain to zero. I'm not going to be able to do that today. My job is to get your pain down enough that you're more comfortable and you can tolerate it. Just setting that expectation up to the patient. And then I, you know, we'll talk about how to do this, but like then I would give, you know, you know, whether it's opiate pain medications or analgesics or, you know, and, you know, anti-inflammatories. Then when I come back and they're saying, well, it was a 15 out of 10, but now it's a nine out of 10. I'd be like, great. It sounds like we've made, you know I mean? It sounds like we're making a lot of progress here. And I don't ever had, you don't have to get people down to zero. That's not the goal. Pain is a very important thing for the body to experience. If I got you down to a zero and kept you at a zero, how do I know that your body's inflammatory response has gone down? I I can mute the pain response, Mm -hmm. but that's not really my job. My job is to get you back to a tolerable level so that if it spikes again, we can identify, you know, the problem type of thing. So uh, that's just something I would encourage everyone to do. I mean, 
is extremely effective for me, you know, when I'm working with patients is again, setting that expectation up early, especially around pain. My, again, my job is not to get your pain down to a zero. I'm not going to be able to do that, but my job is to get it down where you feel more comfortable and can tolerate it. They're happier because they understand what they're looking for. They, I think a lot of people come in and say, take my pain away. And if you just can explain that, like, that's not what my job is. My job is the, and now when you get them to that, which you can, you can get someone to a tolerable level of pain. Mm-hmm they're very happy, right? And you have now, you have this ongoing measuring tool to see how you continue to do as they move forward. Let's talk about dependence and addiction last and let's just jump jump into treatment because it's been a little bit here. Okay. So there are non-pharmacological treatments and there's pharmacological treatments. In nursing, non-pharmacological treatments is like a big initiative that's being pushed constantly. Like in nursing yeah. school, like you're going to learn a lot about non-pharmacological and that makes sense. Like there is an opioid epidemic and we want to, when we can, treat in non-pharmacological ways that that's a great thing to do. It's less invasive. It's, you know, something that the patient can replicate, whether they have access to that kind of medical care or not. So that's kind of nice. So if you guys have followed our content long enough. You've heard me say it a bunch of times, like with a lot of things, but we, if we have to steward well, mm-hmm. the pain m- medications that we have, right? Like we need to be like good stewards of that, like those treatments. And I think start, especially starting with the non-pharmacological is, is very important, right? Mm-hmm. So that we can do that well. So some examples of non-pharmacological. So there's cutaneous stimulation. This would be like massages, uh, heat or cold packs, acupuncture, TEMS units where they'll shock areas to try mm-hmm. to... Um, Stimulating those nerves around yeah. the pain so that you mute that pain. Exactly. So those are cutaneous stimulation methods. And these are um, extremely... Like these... Like they, they work very, very well. Yeah. So an uh, example I like to give, so shoulder dislocations. I used to sedate people for shoulder dislocations all the time, right? I'd give them, you know, ketamine, that type of thing, you know, knock them out for a minute, put the shoulder back in place. I then learned how to do, and I forget, I'll have to look it up, but I forget what the technique's called. I wish I, I wish, I think it's Cunning, it Cunningham's technique. That's what it is. So it's okay. Cunningham's technique where you basically said that you give them something for pain to get the, you know, and then you massage, you have someone massage that shoulder, like aggressively massage the muscles around the shoulder while you slowly like move, Shift like it. externally rotate. And I have more success popping shoulders back into place than that, than when I sedated people. Wow. And now I haven't like potentially suppressed the respiratory drive with, with sedatives. I haven't like exposed them to another strong medication that's, you know, make them groggy later. Like, yeah, I mean, it's like th- this stuff's very effective with pain control. That's awesome. Uh, so other non-pharmacological measures, immobilization, right? Just like keeping something still. Um, and then there's cognitive and behavioral. So this would be things like distraction, relaxation, humor right mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. Yeah. using humor turn on the tv like like some of the things that we do like with nursing planning is as simple as like i would make sure that the tv's on for them and see how they start tolerating i would distract i would engage in conversation with them i can't tell you how many times just being present for a patient and engaging in conversation like there's a lot of boredom in the hospital mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that they're not experiencing pain they're just bored it means that having a distraction can reduce that pain yeah. level and when you're just sitting there and all you yeah. have is your pain to focus in on focus on yeah. it yeah um, one of the examples that I read in one of the textbooks I was using to research this was, was expressive writing. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to go out and say right now that I think that that's a bunch of hogwash. I right? don't think so. You really do? If you, if I was in pain and you came in and told me to write an essay on it, I would put you in so much more pain than I'm in. But that is how you experience pain. Right? I know, but I'm just so going to say, like, Jason Seitz, this is a personal opinion. Jason yeah. Seitz thinks expressive writing for him for anyone for should be a stupid way to treat pain. 
No, that's not true. But think about it. Like if you can write down, I'll tell like, you what, I'll tell you what, write in, write in right now. I'll send you $10. If you can verify that you've used expressive writing and it's helped you with your pain level. I don't know. I think you're going to find a lot of people who have. I think no one's going to. There's a limit on this until October of 2023 <laughs> so that someone doesn't catch out of this. You're like thousands of dollars out <laughs> because one guy keeps writing in. Absolutely ridiculous. I, I would just be, I would be very angry. So know you're patient because if you tell me to, hey, hey, I'm, I'm just hurting really bad. I, I tore my shoulder. I'm hurting really bad. Can I have something for the pain? Oh, do you want, you want me to turn on the TV? Yeah, you know, I've been watching TV. It's just not helping that much. Okay, what about ice pack? Yeah, there's an ice pack on it. Now, I think I think we're at the point where I probably need some pharmacological. Okay, cool. Have you wrote an essay on it yet, though? <laughs> Screw you. I'd kill you. I'd kill you. <laughs> All right. I think for some people, it could be very effective. Great. Let's jump to pharmacological. All right. All right. Pharmacological. So we have something called the analgesic ladder, which is basically a step one, two, and three uh, that we like start patients at step one and we work them up the ladder if the steps don't help them with their pain or bring their pain down to a tolerable level. And again, the goal isn't zero. The goal is never to bring their, patient, their pain down to zero. Mm-hmm. Their goal is to bring them to what their pain goal is, which is something you should communicate with the patient beforehand in your pre-treatment evaluations. And as you educate that patient, you should talk to, hey, what what would you say is a manageable, tolerable level of pain for you, for you to have decent quality of life? And sometimes that's a three, sometimes that's a four. That's our goal then is to get them to a three or below, right? Um, so we'll start, step one would be non-opioid medications, right? So we're going to start with things like anti-inflammatories or NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Examples would be? Motrin. Motrin. Ibuprofen. Ibuprofen. Naproxen. Naproxen. Tylenol. Tylenol. <laughs> I'm like, do you, do you want me to keep going? Yeah. Uh, I mean. Aspirin. Yeah, aspirin. There's actually quite a few other ones, but okay, cool. So we Indo- would start with indomethacin. Like indomethacin is actually a great NSAID. Okay, you asked. Okay. All right, I just sounded like a nerd. <laughs> Step two, we would go into so like we treated we, we, your pain goal is three. You're at a six. We treat you with some NSAIDs. You're only at a five. Now we're going to move on to step two. We'll try weak opioids like codeine and tramadol. Mm-hmm. All right. Once you've had that, maybe you're only down to a, a four now. We need to get you to a three. Now we can step up to strong opioids like morphine, fentanyl, oxycodone, et cetera. Okay? So it's not like if you come into a hospital and you just want fentanyl and you're like, I'm at a 10 out of 10, you're not going to get fentanyl right off the bat. You're going to get started with NSAIDs like anyone else, and you're going to work your way up the ladder. That's the safest way to initiate that treatment. Mm-hmm. Now, there are – how do you say this word? Adjuvants? Yeah, adjuvants. Adjuvants? I think it's adjuvant. It's like adjunct, but I don't know why it's just not just like adjunctant. Adjunctinx? It's a harder adjunctant. thing to word. It's easier for me to say. Word. I can't even say those sentence. A adjuvants. harder word to say. All right, there's adjuvant meds. That sounds weird. I don't know. You could be wrong. Anyway. There's other meds. There's some other meds that you can use that aren't on the ladder that you can plug in if patients have like breakthrough pain or to help specifically with neuropathic pain. Remember we saw, said neuropathic pain or those damages to the nerves and stuff? Mm-hmm. So this would be stuff like gabapentin or... Pregabalin? Pregabalin? I don't know, man. I don't ever know if I'm emphasizing the right syllable, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, these are examples of like, uh, they're almost like antispasmatic. They're like, uh, they're nerve meds that would basically like treat the nerve spasms and and can help with- Their mechanism of action more, like affects the- the, uh, 
nerve receptors that are causing that more like kind of like those like C receptors we talked about, like those dull like t- pins, needles, that type of. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's just so it's like accessory mechanisms of actions to the pain, right? Mm-hmm. So like you you're experiencing pain, we can block pain receptors, right? Mm-hmm. Right, bind to opioid receptors and block pain. We can also do something to calm down the nerve activation. Yeah. So we're, we're going to attack both sides there. Um, antriptyline and duloxetine, mm-hmm. are those both SSRIs? I believe they're both SSRIs. Both of those are like antidepressant medications that can help. Well, they affect your serotonin, right? Serotonin release, so, which is like pleasure receptors. And, yeah. you know, so if we can make you happy and less depressed. I don't think that's how they would do it. <laughs> no, I just, it's dealing <laughs> chemicals in the brain that will right, help, right, right. help with the pain response from, again, another side of it. And then there's also capsaicin cream. Capsaicin. Capsaicin so capsaicin is actually a... I've never used this. This is cool. You told me this right before the podcast, so tell us. Yeah, so capsaicin is actually like a protein enzyme in like hot peppers, like chili peppers and jalapenos and stuff like that. And it is... We talked earlier about how like when you stimulate nerve receptors, they can cause pain, but sometimes you can stimulate them so that they can't experience pain. You, know, you st- almost stimulate the receptor from a different angle so that it doesn't experience or send off the nerve impulses in the same way. And capsaicin cream is kind of that, right? You eat a hot pepper, you feel that burning hot in your mouth. Like it's almost like the, the cream can stimulate those nerve receptors so that they're stimulated, but not in a pain response fashion so that they can't be yeah, overstimulating them so yeah. that they can't. Yeah. I one time, no, I'm not making this up at all. I was about to take my NCLEX the day after and I went to get a massage mm-hmm. and I had always had a female masseuse. Mm-hmm. And they were they're very nice. They're gentle. It felt good. Mm-hmm. And I get like more athletic massages, not like because I can't afford like the really expensive fancy massages. So it's like more of like an athlete. Like I go to like a chiropractor office almost okay. that like okay. also has massage therapists. So there's like a little bit it's more, more like, of like PT than it is like yeah, a relaxing no, honestly, massage. Yeah, yeah okay, yeah, yeah, yeah which gotcha. is totally fine. Yeah. But it's still like like when when these ladies have done it, it has been an enjoyable experience. Has helped you know work work my muscle out, loosen stuff up. Yeah. I had this guy though, and I was already kind of like. <sighs> It's not that it's weird that it's a guy or anything yeah, yeah. like that. It's just like, I wonder if he's going to like make it too athletic and it won't be relaxing. Now right, right, right. like right. I'm worried that he's just because he looks like a big guy and yeah, he's yeah, going to yeah. be strong. He at one, first of all, he talked to me the entire massage. Oh, that sucks. And he talked to me about my job. And we had just like lost one of the firefighters. Like, oh, yeah, like yeah. I had just pronounced one of my own firefighters dead. Like – it was like a lot going on in my life that I didn't want to talk about. And he's like asking about it. Then he's like, so what are you getting this massage for? I'm like, I have a test tomorrow. And he's like, oh my gosh. And then he starts to, to, to like try to quiz me. Oh, wow. And he's not a nurse. That's you know what horrible. I mean? Then he tells me at one point, and this is what this has to do with his cream, is he goes, well, my job really is to just put your muscles under so much pressure and pain to overload that pain response so your pain goes away. And it's like, no, dude, I, you need to take the test for massaging. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that's true. I was no joke. My eyes were watering. Really? Like tears. Like, I'm like you know, I'm in the little head thing. The yeah, little right, right, right. I'm like, my eyes are watering. I'm in so much pain. And it was the day before my NCLEX. And it was absolutely But how did you feel the next day? Terrible. You're pretty sore. Past, but it was terrible. Yeah. Right, fair enough. Anyway, so sometimes that technique works, but yeah, it didn't in my case. All right. So whenever we give uh, pharmacological treatments, we need to understand that there's side effects of those pharmacological treatments, which is why sometimes it's ideal to start with non-pharmacological when we can or in between use non-pharmacological techniques. So some things to consider if you're giving NSAIDs, you're on step one of the ladder, you're giving NSAIDs, some side effects of those would be gastric uh, gastritis, gastric ulcers. Uh, aspirin can actually do asthma exacerbation. 
Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. I learned that recently. Hypertension, renal issues, heart failure, stroke, things like that. Like it increases your bleeding potential kind of um, as an antiplatelet. So we would need to maybe consider giving them things like proton pump inhibitors to stop their gastritis and, and prevent them from having ulcers when we're giving this and just make those considerations and give them meds alongside of those meds to handle those side effects. Mm-hmm. With opioids, opioids will cause like a lot of constipation, nausea, obviously altered mental status if you give too much, sometimes bradycardia if you give too much, itchy skin, respiratory depression is the biggest thing if you give right. too much uh, where they'll stop breathing on you. And then, but again, that it's usually has to be on pretty high doses. So you need to have, when you're giving opioids, you need to have access to naloxone or Narcan so you could reverse opioid overdose, accidental overdose or abuse. Um Antiemetics for nausea, so to take the nausea away, and then atropine for bradycardia if that's a concern of yours. I mean, basically, we're saying like all medications have side effects, right? So understand the side effect profile of the medications that you're giving, whether they're NSAIDs or opiates, and put measures into place to measure and be prepared for those side effects if they were to occur. Yeah. Last two things that we wanted to talk about were quality of life versus removal of pain. And we've talked a little bit about that already. But again, our goal is to increase quality of life and limit that pain to the point where it's tolerable so that you can go on and have a happy and healthy life. Um, this is especially too, true in chronic pain. So with chronic pain, pain that's lasted three months or more, uh, we actually stay away from opioid treatments. We try to stay away from those completely. If it's primary pain, if it's secondary pain, we can still do the opioids because we're trying to treat the underlying condition as well. But if it's primary pain where you just have pain and there's not really a physiological reason we know for having that pain, like pain is the condition in and of itself, we're going to stay away from opioids and we're going to go more towards trying to retrain that brain um, and, and reconnect those nerve fibers. And that's going to be through things like psychotherapy and SSRIs. We, we prescribe a lot of antidepressant medications and stuff like that for people that are experiencing primary pain because that's what's going to help it long term and avoid the trouble of adding a dependence on that too and all the negative side effects of long-term opioid care. Yeah. Well, and I think you, you got to have your patient, patient buy into this too, right? So I think you, a lot of this is a patient education. So if you, just like we're educating you guys today, we educate ourselves when we do these obviously, but like on pain, share all this information with your patients. Talk about pain in this way that we're talking about it today with your patients. Because if your patients can understand pain, if they can define pain for themselves and they're they're educated around how it's experienced and how it's defined and what it is, they're going to have more buy and be like, yeah, okay, you know, I, I get why we're using these different things and you want me to see this therapist. And it's a team approach to trying to deal with the pain. I think a lot of patients just don't realize that other than just getting pain medicine, there are other ways to treat and, you know, mitigate their pain response. So I think educating them to a lot of this stuff too, again, once, once you understand better the cause of your pain, the reason for your pain, how you're experiencing your pain, how you're like, all of a sudden it opens up the door for patients to really buy into a multifaceted approach to pain management. And I think that's very, very important. Yeah. The the control aspect, that loss of control because you don't understand Mm -hmm. can increase that that pain experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing I, I wanted you to talk a little bit on this because I've heard you talk about it before and I think you do a good job is just dependence versus addiction. And what really is the concern with opioids in terms of preventing the opioid epidemic from propagating? Sure. I mean, so there are certain medications that just naturally your body becomes dependent on when you've been on them for a long period of time or even a short period of time. And opiates are one of them. Dependence is not really a problem. Dependence means that, hey, I've been taking, I mean, 
antidepressants, SSRIs, are, are very dependent medications too. So a, a medication that you're dependent on simply means that if you were to stop taking it, you would have withdrawal symptoms. Now, when we think about withdrawal, we think about like, you know, illicit drug withdrawals. That's not really what I'm talking about. Like when you stop an SSRI, you can get a little more irritable. You can have trouble sleeping. Like that is because you had a dependency on that medication. It also means that you may need to take increasing amounts of that medication to get the same effect. Yeah, over time. So if, if you're taking uh, like caffeine for me, for example, right? Like if I want to get perk myself up and awaken, I've been drinking caffeine, Diet Dr. Pepper, sponsor us, Diet Dr. Pepper. <laughs> sponsor me. Someday. Jason.sites at guardianeducationgroup.com. Um, send in your submission. We'll pay you at this point. <laughs> so, um, no, but like I, I drink a decent amount of caffeine each day. If I wanted to really actually perk myself up with caffeine like someone who's never had it before, I would have to consume more right. caffeine. And if you stop and taking, if I stopped ca- taking yeah. caffeine, I'd probably get some headaches, which right. means that I, I would be in withdrawals from yeah, the caffeine. So caffeine is a great example, a very like prevalent somewhat medication that everyone takes that many people are dependent on. Adderall is another example too, right? That if you were to stop taking these many, there's, there's tons of them, but you stop taking them, you would have some type of symptom profile because you stopped taking them. That's what dependence is. Dependence is fine. I mean, they're, they're, like this, when I say fine, I mean, there's nothing wrong with being dependent on a medication if it's helping you and increasing your quality of life and, and treating the thing. It just requires weaning. Right. Addiction is where... And it start, you know, a lot of these things just start with dependence and we need more and more and more and more. And addiction, though, becomes where we start to pursue what the medication does for us and it like to the detriment of our quality of life. So now we're seeking how that medication makes us feel um, and it's starting to like disrupt quality of life. I mean, even something like caffeine can become somewhat addictive if, we're, if you're not careful, especially and how people experience addiction, too, is is a very personalized experience, if you will, as well. If I'm late to work every day because I'm going to sit in line at Starbucks for two hours because I need that caffeine fix through, like that could kind of be defined as like an addictive type of, you know, way that I'm approaching my caffeine intake, right? It's disrupting my quality of life, right? When I start putting myself into bad situations or making unwise decisions in pursuit of how I feel when I take something, that's now, now we define that as an addiction. And that's where, again, we're disrupting our quality of life and that can be a problem. You right. were an hour and 20 minutes late for this podcast because you wanted to stop at Big Apple Bagels and get a bagel <laughs> and then you got lost. So are you addicted to bagels? I mean, if it continues to happen, we should be concerned, right? So No, but yeah, something but again, yeah, it is like, like, you know. Patients will tell you that that amount of fentanyl won't touch me and stuff like that. That doesn't mean they're addicted to fentanyl. It means that they probably maybe are prescribed fentanyl. They're, they're on fentanyl regularly or they've had it regularly and their body has become a little bit more dependent on it, which means that you're going to need more of that to elicit the effect, right? Mm, right? There's nothing wrong with that. They didn't make a poor moral decision. That was part of their plan of care. Right. That was an expected outcome. Right. And I think what what caused the opioid epidemic was the sudden now we're going to pull you off opioids completely. We're not going to wean you off. We're not going to allow your body to come back down and regulate. You are dependent. I'm now pulling the med completely because I'm scared that you could become addicted. And therefore, I made you addicted because you're now going to seek that med outside of it because your body needs it. Not just that. This is what happened with the opiate epidemic is that. Physicians overprescribed opiates to begin with. That was one problem. We overprescribed opiates so people 
were taking them instead of us following this more ladder approach. We just went right to opiates for a lot of people. So a lot of people were dependent on opiates. Then some people started becoming addicted to them. And we, we said, oh, shoot, this is a problem. And we started to pull them. We started to no longer prescribe them. Well, if you're dependent on a medication and I pull it, you're going to start having withdrawal effects. And sometimes those withdrawal effects can be very severe. So now you've got to go find something else to prevent your sim- your withdrawal symptoms. Yeah, you're trying to avoid withdrawal symptoms. You know what's point. a lot cheaper cheaper than like oxycodone? Heroin. Yeah. So like this is what happened, right? We, so we, we propagated this issue, which is, and now we, we've made a lot of strides in, in addressing that too, right? There's medication-assisted treatment, pro, you know, Suboxone, these other medications that we can help, you know, take care of the dependence without propagating the potential for addiction, yeah, right? Wean them off slow. Yeah, and, and there's weaning programs and things like that too. So again, but that that is what happens. So like the dependence is something we need to be very, very aware of with lots of medication. That, that's a medication profile that a lot of medications have. And again, I mean, SSRIs is a great example too. You can't just stop taking SSRIs. You'll go try to find something else to be able to like fill that gap because the withdrawal symptoms can be bad. So again, weaning people off of medications appropriately, using other adjunct therapies like we talked about today to like, you know, and being upfront and honest and educating your patients around dependency and addiction and why we're going to follow this. I mean, maybe we have to say, hey, you know what? We usually keep your pain at a four. For the next eight weeks or so, it's going to have to be at a six so that we can get you shifted over. these. If you can manage patient expectations around that, then you, like I said, your, your, your treatment regimens are going to become much more effective. You have to have patient buy-in, right? So educate your patients to the stuff we talked about today too. It can go tremendously far. Yeah. It's going to be part of the patient's education to tell them, Hey, like as you wean off of this opioid, you know, your surgery's over with now, we're going to try to get you off this opioid. You may experience small withdrawal symptoms here and there. This is what they're going to feel like. Managing so just, pa- just patient expectations, yeah, right? Expectations, what expect right. they need to be expecting these certain symptoms to hurt, so that they're not right. freaking out when it happens. They're trying to like get rid of that. Like, oh, I knew this was coming. I know this will go away. I've been educated to this. Exactly. So, so cool. So that is what we have on pain management. It was a long one, but it's good though. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. So hopefully, you guys, like I said, I, I hope this is something you can take away. One, you feel more educated on it. You can understand a better approach to pain management in general. Again, taking it back to basics has always helped us. This is why we do it for you. Um, and again, something that hopefully you can go and share with your patients even. Um, and I would encourage you to do so. I think, again, getting your patients involved in the management of their pain is probably the most important thing you can do when it comes to pain management and treatment. So we wish you the best of luck with that. And thank you guys for listening. Yeah, as always, you can check this out on guardiancme.com. That's www.guardiancme.com to get your free EMS and nursing credit. Sounds good. Take care. Stay sweet.